for a God that has never failed us. I didn't say it was for me or for Josh. Can we lift up a praise for a God that has never, ever failed us? Hallelujah. Amen. Hey, church, good morning. Did you come expecting to meet God today? Amen. I felt it. Can we just bow in prayer for just a second? If you just close your eyes, put your hands up, put them over your heart, whatever's comfortable for you. But Father God, we just come to you in this moment. Lord, how apt for the song was today for where we're going in the word today. Lord, I pray that the things that we just sang, God, would just be in our heart, God, that there would be our prayer language, Father God. God, it's not always easy to burn, God. It's not always easy to ask you to take from us, God. It's not always easy to hold on to faith, Father. But I believe, Father, that you can do it again. God, I believe that you've moved in my life before, God, and that this is not it. This is just part of the journey, Father. Thank you, God, that I believe, God, that you have done things that are just impossible, Father, and that you can do it again. Thank you, God, that I believe that you're going to show up in the next impossible situation, God, or even the situation that's not impossible, it's just hard, Father. Thank you, God, that you're there too. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Church, I don't know any other way to transition without a clap or just some way to just show God a little bit of appreciation for his doing your heart. If you grab a chair, grab a chair. And tell your neighbor next to you, just say, hey, what's up? I'm glad you're here today. Good morning, Church on the Rock. Hey, we're not even going to do that again. That was a really good hello. Hey, before we get started, I just need to let you know something. Just an update on my life. I, this week, met a man named Corby. That has nothing to do with anything. I've just never met a guy named Corby before, and I had to share that with you. All right. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's go. All right. Hey, every year, you may not know this about me, but I'm half Vietnamese. I got the Polish genes for looks, and I got the taste buds of Asian, I guess, whatever. I don't know. I'm half Vietnamese, and so every year we go for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever, we go to my dad's side of the family, and we pho, and we eat other things, and egg rolls and stuff instead of turkey, but we always take group family photos, and my aunt has termed, a coined a phrase that is deep within our family, so we'll take a photo, and then she'll go, change position, and then we all have to get up and move around, and we have to get into a different position, and change position, and we have to get up and move around, and we say, change position, and we have to get up and move around and take about 10, 15, 20 of those photos. In a little bit, I'm about to tell you to change position. I want you to pay attention to how you respond to this in this next second. Because in a second, I'm about to ask you to get up and find a completely new chair. One, two, three, get up, go. Okay, nope, stop. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you do that today. But I wonder how many of you in that second, when you're like, change position, no! I don't even know what the left side of the church feels like. Like, this is my chair. This is where I sit. I don't even, are those people even saved over there? Like, I don't even know. Like, this is my spot. Whether you like it or not, 
change happens. And we all have different varying levels and different seasons of life, how we respond to change, but usually it's uncomfortable. Usually we don't, because we like this chair. I like this, I like the, pe I know the people in front of me and behind me, left or right, I know this area. Change can be difficult. But as I was talking to Pastor Joe about just our church season and transition and just where we are in life and just even with the fall weather coming in, change is all around us. Pastor Joe says life is not static. It constantly changes. It's our vocab whether we're right now where everybody just went back to school. I was just talking to Browns. This is the first year for one of their sons in college. That's a big jump. How many people know that the step from high school to college was a big jump? Or the step from high school to career was a big jump? Or a step from 8th grade to ninth grade was a big jump? Our, our year is divided by change. When you get the fall and the winter and the spring and the summer, change is life. That is our life, is that we constantly are undergoing change. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Christianity is change. Sometimes it's really easy to just get really focused on the beginning, salvation. And we just think we got to get our friends saved, we got to get our uh, schools saved, we got to get our neighbors saved, we got to get our, and that's awesome. We should be pursuing those things, right? We have this focus, this focus on salvation, focus on salvation. But I think I've used this metaphor before, and you're going to have to forgive me the few, few couple of weeks coming into this, because I can't remember what I've said to youth group and what I've said up here, so I'm going to say it again anyways. But this is kind of like if me and Amy had got married, and all the planning, all the excitement, and we finally are there, and we say the vows, and we are cheering, and he says, you may kiss the bride, and everybody just goes crazy, and you know, if it's a really cool wedding, they're throwing rice at you, or blowing bubbles in your face, or whatever, and you're walking out the back doors, and you drive off and never see each other again. <laughs> Getting a ring on the finger or a legal document signed is not the point of marriage. That's just the start of it. The whole point of marriage is just doing life together from there on out forever. I often say to me, can you believe that out of everybody in the world, I picked you? No, I say, you picked me. Okay, that's the real thing. I just can't believe you picked me. Christianity has changed. Salvation is just the beginning. And when we enter into salvation, a lot of things change immediately, right? First, I just have a quick list of things. So God, the first thing is that God's been calling you, the gospel call, right? And so at salvation moment, there's that conversion process where you respond to God. I'm saying you confess your sins and you say, God, I, I receive you into my life. I want to follow you. And in that moment of regeneration, salvation, there's regeneration. And God takes a dead soul and he breathes life into it. So you can have this new life in Christ. At the moment of salvation, you've been restored and renewed. And then there's justification. Because sin cannot stand before God. So how can we go into holy God's presence? Because we get a new legal status. Son, daughter, holy priest of God. And all of a sudden at the moment of salvation, our title, our legal entitlement has changed. We're able to go before God. And as soon as that happens, we're then adopted into God's family. Isn't that incredible? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then he allows, grafts us into the family tree. And all of a sudden, maybe you, may, I don't know your family origin, but usually family can come with mess. Usually there's a little bumps and bruises along the way. And God says, invites us into his family. All of this happens at the moment of salvation. But all of that is just the beginning of your Christian life. So I had to pull out my uh, systematic theology uh, 
uh, book this week, and this starts a process called sanctification. And this is the definition. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. It is a progressive work that will continue all throughout our earthly way. Another way to say this really simply is that sanctification is change. We're all on our journey of becoming. You regenerate, something changed in your spirit, changed at the beginning of salvation, but it's not quite there yet. If If you've been saved for any length of time, you've probably felt the internal tension of being pulled to the things that you were before you knew Christ and being pulled to the things that you know that you want to be. There was a mindset change of saying, these things used to satisfy me, but they no longer do that. I'm in process. I'm in change. I am becoming something that I know I'm not quite there yet. And this process will continue throughout our whole life. And something that struck me, it's really important, and I have not really thought about it before this week is when I was prepping for this, was that the part that, about that definition that stuck out to me is that it is a cooperative work between man and God. You, me, we have a part to play in the sanctification process. I don't know if that strikes you as it struck me, but I have an active role in becoming like Jesus. If you would, just turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and this is kind of kind of set the course of where we're going today. It is a joint effort between us and God. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to verse 17. And it goes like this. With the Lord's authority, I say to you this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do. They're hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure, eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupt by lust and deception. Verse 23, instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And then as I was looking up this week, I was finding other verses on the old man into the new man. And there's a ton in Romans, but pretty much all of them go, Romans 8, 6 says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Letting the spirit control your mind leads to life. Romans 12, 2 says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. Let God transform you into a new person. Galatians 5, 16 says, Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Maybe you're starting to see a pattern right now. Romans 6, 12 says, Do not let sin control you. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument to serve evil. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. So there's a pattern here that I'm starting to see out of all these verses that we just went through very quickly. But a couple core things come very quickly out of that. First is that God's a gentleman. God is kind and compassionate and gentle with you. He's gentle with me. At the moment of salvation, he's not just going to come in and whack you over the head and force obligation out of you. He's not going to force behavior out of you. He's not going to force lifestyle out of you. 
he's a gentleman. He asks, he says, this is where you're going. This is what you could be. This is what I've set for you. Do you want to go that way? As soon as we enter into salvation, we enter into this spiritual, physical struggle where we're internally coming, as long as we're here, we're going to struggle against pursuing what the Spirit has called us to do, becoming like Jesus, and leaving away the things that we used to do, the things that used to fulfill us, the things that we used to feel control over, the things that used to um, maybe replace God in our lives. And so the very first thing of all of these verses, you'll see the similarity, is let God, let the Holy Spirit, let them transform you. Let them renew you. Let them put on the new person. Let the old go away. There's this process of your wills involved in letting those things happen. Have you ever had a kid or employee or somebody you're working with, like, just let me help you. Let me talk to you. Let me in. There's this function in our lives of where we have to say, God's willing he will move. He wants to do so much with us, but there's this part of us that has to let him do it. He's not just going to come and force your hand, twist it behind your back, and make you say, uncle. He asks you to move. You know, my, my uh, background, when I first got my uh, cut into ministry, it was a horse ranch. And I did not go for horses. I actually hate horses. Um, they're the worst. They're just big and stinky and poop everywhere and they kick you. So they're the worst. But I went because of the people and I knew the people and I loved the people. And so I went to this ministry for a year, this camping horse ministry. And so I, I had to be Cowboy Josh and I, I, I don't like that, but that's what I was. And they made us work with horses and they're like 150 head or something like that. And I got to see what was very unique about this camp was that they would break wild horses but they would never do it how they see it in the movie, where they just strap a cowboy in, he just, woo, just rides them out and bucks them out and everything. We'd sit there, and this was church sometimes, and the pastor would get up, and he was, you know, a little Texas cowboy or whatever, and he'd get up there, and he'd start working with this wild horse, this colt that's never been ridden, never been touched, never been led by a person. And over the course of an hour, he develops a relationship with the horse, where at the end of that sermon, end of that time, he mounts and rides the horse without a bucking, without a kicking, without breaking a spirit. God doesn't want to come in and break us. He wants to come in and he wants to know you through relationship. And it requires on our part this letting God move. Let the spirit work. Let him guide you. Let your mind be transformed. And right be underneath that is a very, very easy lesson of all of this stuff is that it requires stopping. If you go back and look at all of those verses that we just read, most of them have a very detailed list that we skipped this morning, but a very detailed list of the sinful life. Anger, deceit, lust, greed, profanity, all these things that characterize things that are not of God's spirit. Very easily, very, maybe you're stuck there and you're like, I don't know what the next, I feel like I've kind of plateaued in my spiritual life. I don't know what the next step is. One of the first and easiest ways to do is, are you doing the things you know you should be doing? Are you stopping the things you know you shouldn't be doing? It can be simple. It could be very bad. It could be whatever. It could be as simple as saying, I know I should be going to bed earlier so I can wake up earlier and spend time with God. I have the time to read my Bible, 
I just allocate that to Seinfeld at night, or whatever you're watching. I don't care. And so this first thing is letting God move, letting God transform us. And then secondly is stopping what we know is wrong. And this is where that, that the song we just sang, there were fires, fires, burning. I want to be tried by fire. Take me. But fire hurts. <laughs> Have you ever been burned? That's not comfortable. That hurts. Have you ever burned something and got a little singed? Had your eyebrows gone a little bit? Come on, pyromaniacs, where you at? Fire hurts. Stopping may require sacrifice. We just sang about that, but sacrifice inherently means that you're giving something up you don't want to give up. Maybe God's calling you to get out of a relationship. Maybe God's calling you to change your language. Maybe God's calling you to change your living habits. Maybe he's changing your how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your whatever. I don't know what it is for you. But stopping requires some kind of sacrifice. It requires giving control, taking it away from you, and putting God on reign, letting him run with it. You know, you were probably ran through when you, when, if somebody was with you, or maybe you're reading scripture, maybe it was an online thing. When you received God, you might have prayed something of that. Jesus, I want to let you in my heart to be Lord, Savior, King of my life. That is an authority shift in your life of saying, I'm going to stop running the show, and I'm going to give you, let you tell me what to do. I'm going to say, God, you run my life. And that might require uncomfortable change. That might require, it, pro, it will require stopping something that you like to do, that I like to do. And lastly, in these three things I see just right here in the process of sanctification is that when you empty something, you need to fill it back up. And so it's not just enough that we see, it's just as big of a list of all the things to stop we also get lists of things to start. Stop lying. Tell the truth. I love in the very end of Ephesians. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Give me a second. Verse 28, 428. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work. And then give generously to others in need. It requires stopping. It requires starting. And then we get this thing of going above and beyond. If you're a thief, stop. Stop stealing. Go work hard. Make a living. And then go above and beyond and be generous. God's not just calling you to the opposite. He's calling you to the opposite and above and beyond that. And that's where faith starts coming in, where we start getting these God ideas, these things that we can't do by ourselves. and maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's like, oh, man, I want to just be, a, I feel like I'm supposed to be a generous giver. I'm supposed to be just giving away more, giving away more, but it doesn't make sense on bills, doesn't make sense on paperwork. But if God's calling you to it, pursue that. You start giving license, you start giving space, you start letting God do something that only God can do. I don't know about you, but for a long time I tried to fix myself. There are a lot of days I still wake up and try that. 
And sometimes you just have to stop, get out of the way, and let God move in your life. Change is hard. Change is hard. But it requires an intentional effort on your part. You know, it's very, very, very unlikely that you will just drift into the person God's calling you to be. Have you ever gone to the beach or maybe the uh, water park and you got in that lazy suit and you got in that, that, that little tube and you close your eyes, the sun's warm, the water's right, somebody's watching the kids and you just start drifting and all of a sudden you look up, open your eyes and you're really far from where you want to be. Drifting takes you away. Walking aimlessly takes you away from where you want to be. When I graduated ministry and I, uh, the ministry program I was in, when I left, I had an advisor, as mentor, and the one piece of advice he gave me at goodbye was he said, Josh, walk with purpose. Walk with purpose. Do things with purpose. Let it be meaningful. And so easy to just wander, meander, to drift and think that we're going to be, why, why am I so mad? Why am I so frustrated? Why are the things that God promises not here? It takes an intentional effort. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose to have those things happen. Mark chapter 4, verse 24 through 25 says this. He says, pay attention to what you hear. The closer you listen, the more understanding you will be given. You will receive and you will receive even more. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away. There's this interesting thing in our life is that when you give God your attention and you give him more, it seems like more and more and more come. It seems like more and more abundantly. If if you've practiced and pursued any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you might say, man, I I prayed for this, I prayed for this, and the more I started praying for it, the more faith I took, and the more I started doing it, the more and more I saw. But the reverse of that is true. If we start closing our minds off, if we start saying no, if we start shutting down, if we start saying not today, then we start drifting and our hearts become calloused. Our ears stop hearing as clearly. Because we start losing the thing that God gives us because we're not being good stewards of that. We're denying that relationship with that. If I ignored my wife for two months and never did anything wrong, didn't sin, do anything wrong, just didn't talk to her, you think I'd be able to just walk in one day and just hug her and be like, hey, hon, I love you. How's it going? What's for dinner? She'd be like, why haven't you talked to me for two months? What's going on? You think that communication would still be healthy? You know, Amy was uh, in a parenting moment with Nora. Um, and I'm almost getting to the point where I can't use Nora's stories anymore. She's going to start remembering this stuff, but we're not quite there yet, so we're good for right now. But she had done something kind of, uh, um, maybe if you have a sibling, maybe you can remember moments that you would rather forget of things you've done to your siblings. And so she had done something to her sibling that wasn't great, and Amy's talking her through that, and Nora, in this moment of confession, she said, I, I want to trust and follow Jesus. But today, I'm going to be rude. (laughs) She's five. And Amy started talking to her then. She said, Nora, do you think that's a good choice? Do you think that's that's what you should do? Is that the right choice? And Nora said, Mom, it's just one day. She's five. But sometimes we treat God and Holy Spirit like that. It's just one time. It's just one choice. It's just one day. But if you string enough days together, all of a sudden you're no longer living one choice one day. It's a lifestyle. 
And all of a sudden, you're like, how did I drift all the way over here? I was there. I was so close. I was the foot. I felt God. How am I all the way over here? It's one choice. One decision. One time deciding not to listen to that voice. And all of a sudden, your heart starts becoming a little icy, a little cold. All of a sudden, your ears stop hearing as acutely as they heard before. You know, it's even beyond that. Even beyond when we start making those choices of just one day, just one time. When we start making those choices, something else happens is that we start taking control back from God and trying to control our life. God, you're saying to do this. I know this is the right thing, but you know what? Just, just once today, I'm going to take that. Just once today, I'm not going to do that. Just, I know I should respond in love, but you know what? I'm just going to give in to anger in this moment and just go off on this person. And something happens is that we start wandering. We start drifting back to the start. It's very unlikely that we'll drift into the person that God's called us. And all of a sudden, the things that uh, defined our life before Jesus seem like they make sense again. Life is spinning out of control. I don't know. I'm just angry. You know what? This was my vice before. I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to choose that again. And one of my favorite verses in, uh, in high school was Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats its foolishness. It's foolishness. We think we control our lives if, you know, this is too much, too much sacrifice. Or I'm just not in a place today to be a good Christian. Or it's just one day. But all of a sudden you find yourself wandering back to the things that drove you to Christ in the first place. There was a reason that you pursued Jesus. There was a reason that you said, this is the life I want to follow. This is the reason that you said, Jesus, be the king of my life. There's a reason that you were giving up all those things. And then we trick ourselves into thinking that those things will make the hard things right now better. And we go back. You know, the Israelites, the ones that were enslaved for like 400 years, enslaved for 400 years. There's something like 10, 11 instances in the Bible after they've been saved on the way to the promised land where they say, I wish that we had just died in Egypt. I wish that we could go back to Egypt. Numbers 11, 4 through 6, it says, The foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. The people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone and all we ever see is this manna. Just a refresher course. Egypt was where they were slaves. Egypt in Moses' lifetime was where the Pharaoh set a rule in place to murder, execute all the young Hebrew boys. All we see is manna. I really could go for some garlic right now. I want to go back to Egypt. And that's ridiculous, but we do it ourselves. This is too hard. This journey, God, you've been too quiet. This journey has been too difficult. Man, I wish the days when I could just go to the bar. Man, I wish the days where I could just you fill in the blank. Man, I wish the days where I could just, whatever. And we start thinking that Egypt is a lot better than the journey. Christianity has changed. When we get saved, we're on this process of becoming who God's called us to be.
Sometimes it's even easy to take. They complained about the manna. That was God's answer to their starvation. They get on this road. It's always been provided for them before. And they start on this road. And they're like, we can't farm. We can't eat our food. This is where we can't eat our herd. This is where all of our other supplies, milk and everything's coming from. God, we're dying out here. And that's the first time they want to go back. And so God sends them manna. This, this, this substance on the ground they could gather and to make bread out of every single day except for Sabbath. And God sends us this miracle. And they say, oh my gosh, all we see is miracles. I wish I had the onions and leeks back in Egypt. Some of us, myself included, have prayed for things, asked God for things, and then God moves, and they're like, God, I can't believe that you would do this to me. I can't believe that I have to work here. I can't believe that this is the woman you gave me. I can't believe these kids. Bless their pointy little ears. And all of a sudden, the things that are miracles, the things that God was giving us, we just say, enough is enough. Send me back to Egypt. Slavery was better than this. You know, everything we've been talking about right now has been intentional spiritual formation, though. These are things that you have a choice in, that you're working through, the lifestyle and stuff. But, you know, last week we opened up a conversation on grief and pain and and loss and disappointment. And how many know that when you go through grief, you're changed? When tragedy comes upon you, it changes you. When you experience loss, when you experience disappointment, it will change you. And these concepts, these are still relevant when change is forced upon you. Last week, I I cautioned you to slow down, to face grief, to wait in the unknown when you don't see God moving. Don't be quick to say all the verses that are going to just, you know, we say just that God has a plan for you and he can finish his good work and just have the faith of a mustard seed. Don't be quick to get there. Sometimes you you need to feel the pain. You need to process it. You need to not just stuff it down. You need to face it and walk into it because God's going to walk in the pain with you. He's not just on the other side. He's in the middle with you. Romans 8 says, I will catch you wherever you go. Nothing can get away from you. My love's going to pursue you. And you know what that says to me? Even if I run away from God, he's in front of me. Even if I'm journeying towards it, he's with me. And so sometimes we just want to dull the things. Just be quiet. This week, though, I want to give you the good Bible verses, okay, that are going to encourage you. This week, I want to tell you about what change can do for you. And so I want to bring up a guy named Joseph. And we're probably pretty familiar with Joseph, but if you're not, I'm going to give you the abbreviated story. Joseph was from a family of 12 brothers, two moms. There's a whole sermon there called Mama Drama. We'll do that some other time. But there's this whole story. So he has... Two bro- he has one brother from one mom, and then he has ten stepbrothers. And there's immense jealousy there because his dad favors these Joseph and his son, brother Benjamin. And so the other ten brothers just, are just filled with anger and jealousy and envy. And so one day Joseph is just kind of being a brat, and he says, God gave me this dream. It was a real dream from God. He said, basically, you're all going to bow down to me, and I'm going to be your leader. And how many people have a younger sibling that's tried to assert authority over you and you had to show them their place? Come on. I know that, listen, I know this is church, but come on. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-mm, you're not going to rise up over me, boy. And so they do that. And so, who said amen? Okay, and then they take Joseph and they 
make a bad decision. And they, they sell him into slavery. They concoct a story of his death by a wild animal. Take his robe, rip it, dip it in blood, give it to the father and say he was killed while he was working. And so Joseph got that dream from God that you're going to raise up, rise up, people will serve you, you're going to be a place of leadership, a promise as a boy. And he gets sent to Egypt and sold into slavery to the Egyptians. And he's there and he's working in Potiphar's house and, and there he's, he rises through the ranks, becomes the second in command, runs the house, runs the finances, but he runs into trouble. And he's falsely accused of adultery. He's falsely accused and he's pursued and when, when he, she, he denies her, he's falsely accused and placed into jail. And even in jail, as he's just sitting there in the muck and the filth, he's not let go of God. Imagine, after years and years of making it so far and then falling to the literal bottom, just how can you hold on to what God's promised you? But he does. And so another person comes in and they say, okay, here's a dream. If you can interpret it for me, what do you think? And he tells them the interpretation. That guy takes it back to the king. And the king's like, wow, that's amazing. And he forgets about Joseph. But then a couple years later, he hears this. The king has a dream and that servant remembers Joseph. And he says, there's a guy in the pit. Go grab him. So he goes and grabs him and brings him out. And long story short, Joseph again rises to power. Second in command of Egypt, only under Pharaoh. A slave from a Hebrew slave. And years and years later, he's a full-grown man, married, has kids now. Who walks through the door is Joseph's brothers. Famine had hit the land. And they're completely, just not just Egypt, but all the surrounding lands. There's no food. And so the brothers are going to Egypt just hoping that they can buy food. And they go before Joseph, and there's this whole long story, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And this is what I want to tell you guys tonight. Genesis 45, verse 4, it says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine has ravaged the land for two years. It's going to last another five years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. But God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was that God who sent me here, not you, and he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh and manage his entire palace and govern all of Egypt. Hard times are going to come. They'll be forced upon you. You'll have moments of loss. You'll have moments of grief. They're not your choosing and not, I believe, God's best intention for you. We have free will. When we choose not to live like God is calling us to live, your actions never just affect you. They affect others. When we can cause loss, we can cause hurt in other people's lives. This was not God's intention. But... God can turn every evil for your good and his glory. And Joseph's story shows that as one that waited in the unknown. I've never had to be in prison for two years waiting for a dream of rising to authority come true in my life. But I can't really imagine how hard it would be to hold on to that hope. Hold on to that trust. How hard it would be to be in prison and literally just see no way out. This is the rest of my life until I die. 
but I trust God. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's not going to turn out how I thought, but I trust God. I'm facing a moment right now that is so painful. It's rocking my world, the hardest loss I've ever experienced. And I can't possibly see how God's going to turn this for his good. But I trust God. This, I know we're all thinking the same thing, is the perfect time to tell you the story of the bull weevil. What the heck? Back in uh, the 1900s in southern Alabama, the farmers would plant one thing, and that was cotton. And they would, they, would harvest, they would plow as much land as they could, plant as much cotton as they could, and year after year after year, that was the only thing that they would do. In 1915, a blight came upon them called the boll weevil. And it came hard, and it completely decimated and destroyed the whole crop. And so the next year, the farmer said, you know what? It was a bad year. We don't know where this bug came from. It's never happened before. Mortgage the house. Pull out the loan. Let's just go again. And the year two, they planted the cotton. And the boll weevil came back and decimated their crops. Two years now of no income. Two years of everything on the line. Two years of the hardest situation they could ever dream of. And so the farmers that survived, the farmers that stuck in with it, the farmers that made it to year three, they said, okay, we got to do something different. This is it. This is risky for the biscuit. What are we going to do? And they said, you know what? There's this crop that not a lot of people are doing, not a lot, some known about it, but it seems sturdy. Let's plant peanuts this year. And they planted peanuts. And the peanuts proved to be a much sturdier, hardier crop that the boll weevil could not take over. And you know what happened? They became wealthier than they had ever become before. They started learning how to diversify their crop to, for the land and for themselves. And there became a huge need and calling for peanuts. And those, they were paid off all their debts. They paid off everything that was against them. And they reached a financial status they never would have become without the bull weevil. And so some of those farmers took that wealth. And you know what they did? They created a monument. I don't know. Do we have a picture of that, guys? They created a monument of the bull weevil. That's a little zoomed out. Try the next one. And so they actually created a monument. <laughs> That's really zoomed in. <laughs> you have to go look it up on your own. And they put this thing in the center of their town in Alabama called the Boll Weevil Monument, and they wrote on there, if it had not been for the Boll Weevil, we attribute much things to it because it would never have progressed us to the financial wealth we have now. The thing that, that, that was going to come and destroy them turned out to be a catalyst for good for them. The thing that they thought was just the end of the line, there's no way out, there's no way past this, I, this is definitely going to be the end of me, I can't see how this could possibly be worked for my good turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to them. And I'm not standing up here promising you that every single bad thing that's going to happen to you is going to make you a millionaire. But I am promising you is that every time you let God in, you choose to stop doing wrong, you choose to start doing what you know is right, you choose to let God can take control of the situation. You choose to hold on to trust. God will take your negative circumstance, the thing that's hurting you the most, the person that's hurting you the most, and he can do something good out of it for you and through you and for other peoples in your life. You know, 
my greatest pain in life, the things that have caused me the most tragedy, the most loss, the most backstabbing, the things when people failed me, have been the things that I have used for the greatest ministry. Something happens when we go through our grief. Something happens when we go through our loss. And this is kind of adapted from Pete Cesaro, but he says, Facing grief, many new unexpected changes can occur. We experience new inner birth or changes. We have greater capacity to wait on God and surrender to his will. Something in our fearful self that wants to run the universe for God is broken and we have greater capacity to trust God. We become more kind, more compassionate. Sadness softens our defense and people find us safer. Absorbing our pain, we're able to enter the pain of others. We're less covetous, less idolatrous. Life is stripped of its pretense and non-essentials. We are liberated from having to impress others. We can follow God's plan with new freedom because we are no longer motivated to please people. We're able to live more comfortably with the mystery and not knowing of God and his plans. We're characterized by greater humility and brokenness. We are more at home with ourselves and with God. Layers of our counterfeit self are shed. Something truer, that is, Christ in us and through us, slowly emerges. New possibilities become possible for us and for all that we touch with our lives. Genesis 50, 20, and this is a common English Bible. He says, Joseph, he says, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people. Your greatest pain, your greatest loss can be your catalyst into ministry to other people's lives. When you engage in that, you all of a sudden have a platform to speak into somebody's life and say, I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to lose. I know what it's like to feel like God's not there. I also know what it's like to trust him. I also know what it's like to get onto the other side of this and to know that he's still there. I also know what it's like to know that God doesn't give up, that God answers, that God will not be stifled, that I will not be let down when I trust him. Something happens in us that becomes not just a blessing for ourselves, but a blessing for others, a bless to bless others. And this is what I want to just leave you guys with today, is to stick with it. Dan, you can start whenever you're all ready. In a little bit of time, we're going to have altar time and just, we're going to have an opportunity to just pray and sing. And if you'd like to have prayer, you're welcome to come up here. But I want to give you this idea. it is very unlikely that you will drift into the person who's God's calling you to be. It is very unlikely that you will just drift into the promise that God has given you. At some point, probably every day, you're going to have an opportunity to say, am I going to choose to stick with this or not? This is just a silly example, but I just want to give it to you, is that in high school, I started working out uh, one thing, one thing only, and that was the bench press, because that's all that mattered. And nobody cares how much you can curl, they just care how much you can bench. And so I remember this time of where I was just high school, just starting, nobody, I didn't know anything, just learning how to do it, and just, there was a certain number that I just kept getting stuck on, and stuck on, and stuck on, and stuck on. And it took me months to break that. But I remember one day, 
where I was like, you know what, let's try it, Austin, rack them up. And we put it, and we tried to do it, and I just all of a sudden blew past it and blew past it, weight like 25 pounds more than I'd ever benched before. I never would have gotten there. And I'm not going to tell you the number because it's embarrassing. But I never would have gotten there if I hadn't stuck with it. There's things that God is doing in your life. If you don't stick with it, you won't know what the blessing is. You won't know what the good is. And instead of being a catalyst for good in people's lives, it's going to be your greatest obstacle to hurdle. You need to stick with it. You know, the Israelites were very intentional. Where When they crossed a river, they did something that God had to move. They would take something and they would set it up so that they would remember it. They would see it. And I wonder how many people today are having an obstacle, a situation in their life that just seems overwhelming. That seems like, where is God? They're still in, last week we talked about facing grief and waiting it. Maybe that's still you today. What I want to tell you is you, you need to stick with it. God is not dead. He's not defeated. He's coming and he can still, and he's working with you and he's in with you in the moment. And so just a couple minutes, the band's going to play. The altar's going to be open. If I could have a couple people, the altar team, if you know who you are, you can come up. If you want prayer, you're welcome to come up. If you just need a stick, maybe you just need a popsicle today. Did you ever skin your knee and your mom or dad or uncle or grandpa or whatever just gave you a popsicle? I've got some popsicle sticks for you today. There's no popsicle, it's just a stick. Maybe you just need to take this popsicle stick and maybe you need to set it on your desk at work when it gets really hard and you remember to stick with it. Maybe you need to put this stick, maybe you need to put it somewhere on your dining room table when your kids are giving a, getting a little rowdy and you remember they need to just stick with it. Maybe you need to put this in your Bible when you get to your prayer spot and you just feel like you can't pray because you're too hurt today. Maybe you just need to remember you need to stick with it. I don't know what it is. I don't know if this works for you. That's fine. But the prayer team is going to be up here. If you just start standing across this place right now, go ahead and stand, church. Just go ahead and stand right now. Let me pray over you. We're going to open the altar for a little bit of prayer. If you don't need to come up, if you don't want to come up today, that's fine. Just worship and pray from your chair. You can follow Devin, the worship band. But let me just speak speaking over you. Father, thank you, God, that you are in control. Thank you, God, that if we stick with it, God, you we know that you're going to move. Thank you, God, that you can take my worst pain, Father, and use it for your glory and my good. Thank you, God, that you can do things that I didn't think were possible. Thank you, God, that when I come up to it, I can remember that you've moved before and you're going to move again. Church, in about five seconds, the altars are going to be open, and I want to meet you here. The altar team wants to meet you here. And if we can just join you in prayer today, We'd love to partner with you. We're going to have some popsicle sticks available. And so if you just want a popsicle stick, come up to the front and find me. I'll give you a popsicle stick. We'll go from there. So, Father, we just give you this service. We pray you would move as hearts need to be moved and that you'd be speaking to us how we need to hear you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.